Friends, welcome back to another episode of Opera Off Stage. I'm Michelle. And I'm Jesse. And today we're going to be discussing some of the things that music schools are missing in their curriculum. I think every music student knows that there are so many wonderful things that you learn in music school, but as you go from undergrad to graduate program or graduate program to real life um, outside of school, we kind of realize some of the pockets where our education maybe didn't fill us in on the things or skills that we really needed to know. So we're going to just kind of chat about that today. The benefit of having already finished our master's is that hindsight is twenty twenty, and looking back, we can kind of more clearly see at this point in our lives what we kind of wish we had gotten out of school, where you might not think in school that you want any more of it. Yeah, definitely. So our first major thing that we recognized did not get covered in music school was social media, which is understandable. A lot of the people who are currently teaching in a music school weren't dealing with social media when they were actively performing. Luckily, we actually covered this pretty thoroughly in a separate episode called Social Media, so you should definitely go and check that out. But just a couple things to think about. Yes, social media is definitely an ever-evolving art form and something that is constantly changing as consumerism changes, as trends change, as new technology comes out. So it's definitely kind of something that I think is intimidating and maybe something that doesn't really feel necessary to teach in school, but it really is because, you know, there's so much to learn about self-promotion. There's so much to learn about networking. There is so much to be said about having a professional website, even when you're in an undergrad school. It's just all so important. Luckily, we talked at length about creating a social media presence and kind of the basics on how to do that in one of our previous episodes called Social Media. So go ahead and listen to that if you already haven't. But I definitely wish that social media for musicians was taught in school because you can get a lot of opportunities and you can really build your audience and share your art that way. So it really seems like a necessary skill to to have in your toolbox. Absolutely. And there's so many things that I think the thing is that people think that social media is largely personality based when there is actually quite a bit of science and kind of strategy behind it, which is why businesses hire people to run their social media accounts. There's a lot that goes into it that's not just natural or intuitive. Absolutely. Perhaps one of the most important things that I think music schools are lacking or many are lacking are the very career-driven courses. And what I mean by this is our music business, our opera business courses. I personally feel like we learn so many things in music school, but if we don't know how to apply them to the real world, if we don't know how to get gigs, if we don't know how to handle our finances, do our taxing, save money, work and budget our checks from concerts when we maybe don't have a a month of work in between, if we don't know what our mission statement is as a artist, if we don't know what our brand is, you know, it's kind of like you spent all these years in music school, and it might be a little harsh to say, but it's almost like if you don't take a course on how to actually leave music school and still be sufficient and know what you're doing, it's kind of like, what's the point? You know what I mean? I think that not having career courses is a huge reason why so many of us get music degrees and get graduate degrees and 
don't end up really doing anything in music after a couple years because we're not necessarily always taught the skills that we need to actually succeed in the real world. And one of the most influential classes I ever took was uh, Business of the Opera Business, taught by Jonathan Pape at the Boston Conservatory. And this, I feel like, just really changed my perspective on being a professional musician and really all of the things that you need to be aware of and actively working on to educate yourself to really actually have a shot at being a professional musician and yeah I could go on about this forever but I just don't understand why classes like this aren't always offered but especially why they're not part of the core curriculum. Yeah, well, the same thing at UIUC. We have a course called Career Prep that's run by Julie Gunn. I really love talking money because um, it's something that goes criminally under-discussed. You talked about budgeting, but also how do you file your taxes when you're essentially a contract employee? We also talked about what happens when you join the union and everything. And yeah. all when should you be joining the union? How do you talk to managers and agents and when should you have a manager and agent and how to look out for bad agents like it's so so important to talk to people about this stuff even if it's not relevant right at this very second which I think is why a lot of schools overlook it but that that information is desperately needed you have to give people that foundation and it is funny because career prep is also a course that is technically an elective (laughs) right exactly yeah I mean, at Boko, it was an elective, and I always felt so bad for all of my colleagues that didn't have room in their schedule to take it or had to choose a different class over it because I really can't imagine having graduated with a you know, a master's degree and not have taken that course. That, that's one of the really, really big ones. And I, like I said, I can kind of understand not necessarily requiring it in undergrad. In grad school, I think that's exactly where you should be giving people this information because these people have dedicated another two years of their lives to to trying to make a living off of this. And this is the basis of what makes a sustainable music career, is having business knowledge. And it's not something that comes, once again, naturally to a lot of people. This is something you actually do have to sit down and talk about, and talk about how do you survive these next couple years where you may not be making a stable living off of just music. Well, yeah, and I think that this kind of taps into perhaps a larger issue within the classical community. We can't just hope that the future of classical music is going to be amazing or or solid if we're not sending out, you know, these upcoming generations of young singers as prepared individuals to actually be able to have the tools to succeed. Of course. Yeah, and there's a certain level of honesty to that whole discussion, too, of just like, this is difficult, the world is difficult, There are people who will try to take advantage. You know, there's all kinds of things that go into these larger discussions about operating within the music business. But yeah, it's it's not a super fun conversation to always be having, but it's so necessary. And that business knowledge is really what gets you from being a student to being a professional. I I think that's that's a huge portion of it. Another thing that I see kind of just rides under the radar of requirements in music courses and in music degrees is acting classes, which is funny because we're on stage an equivalent amount of time. (laughs) I have never been in a music class required to do the same level of character prep as I was when I took acting classes. And once again, acting classes were not required. I took them because I wanted to and I had the, I was fortunate enough that I came into college with enough time to take extra courses. 
Yeah. I mean, there's such an intensity when you take a pure acting course with no music involved to the level of prep that you do for character work, even if it's just a monologue. Because of how much it takes to learn the music, learn the language, learn the show, we rarely get to do that kind of in-depth work. It's a lot of doing it on your own, which once again is difficult if you've never done it. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember it was a similar situation. I took an acting class because I had time for it in my schedule in my graduate program. And we, every couple months, would do like a special class where the only thing that we were doing was acting out our arias or art song. And so we would bring in a pianist and then we would just break it down. And sometimes our teacher would have us perform it as a monologue. I really had never, like you said, put in so much conscious effort in really figuring out the emotion and the intent behind any of my pieces because I feel like when you're in your private lessons and your teacher asks you, you know, what is the, what's the emotion, what's the intent behind the song, we rarely have the opportunity to really dive in and analyze our music as theater and as it's just kind of a shame because you know I feel like in our career there's still so much like stands and sing even in major opera houses and I think that is a huge problem for us and luckily it's something that I feel like is changing with these last couple generations where we definitely are moving away from the, the plant and sing but I mean there's a reason why people like to see other forms of music more than classical music because obviously you know in musical theater when they're up there emoting the heck out of the role that's more entertaining a lot more times you know yeah. Well, and I think that's why sometimes, you know, some of the best opera performers that I knew had a real history in musical theater or had a real history in straight theater. Yeah. You know, take Natalie Desai, who started off studying acting and then moved into music later um, than most people do. And you can see it in how she approaches her roles. And those are some great people to watch when you think... Like, because I sometimes think we obviously take on the effects of our favorite performers. So seek out performers who have that history in acting, too, because you'll learn a lot from them. But yeah, the first time you ever do an aria as a monologue and you realize that you've been singing it, not even close to how you would necessarily speak it. And it changes. It's changed my intonation a number of times on a lot of arias when I finally take the time to slow down and speak them dramatically. And that goes back into learning how to learn music again. That's something that should always, always be in your toolbox, and not everyone does it because we're kind of rushed. But also, there's dialogue. There's dialogue in opera. And, you know, if you do a magic flute production fully in German, there's German dialogue you're going to have to speak, like an actor, in another language, which is a whole nother layer of difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's so important that we learn how to do monologues, do dialogue, how to speak our music-like dialogue in order to add personality to it and how to, you know, do character prep because that leads into movement and singing and everything. It, it plays into all parts of performance. And sometimes I think we forget that <laughs> singing classical music isn't about being right. It's about being entertaining. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, after you're really at the graduate level and you're in the real world, so to speak, and auditioning for these major summer programs and companies, you get to a point where everybody's good, okay? Everybody is a great singer, and the ones that stand out are the ones who are also really good actors. 
you know? Because if you have two equally good singers, you're obviously going to go with the one who was emoting and clearly knows what they're singing about versus the person who's just standing there who has a beautiful voice. So when we get to this level where everyone is exceptionally gifted vocally, you really need to kind of think about these other related skills that you also need to be very good at, you know? And acting is very fun. (laughs) There's no reason to avoid it at all. Sometimes even if you're not the better singer, true, acting will take you over the edge because there are honest to goodness characters where acting is just more important than how beautiful you sound. (laughs) That's not even a joke. That's very true. There are just... No, that's a great point. Well, and that's the thing... Acting will always be the more important part because if I just wanted to hear beautiful singing, I would put on Spotify. <laughs> you go to an yeah. opera to see people perform. But yeah, that it's it's difficult. And I understand the difficulty in putting together an opera and doing that character prep, which is why I think having those acting classes is so important. And having someone who understands opera teaching those acting classes is really important because it's a lot to incorporate. But it starts at the very basic level of how we prep our music. And it's, it's just a shame because it, I don't want to perpetuate the idea that opera singers don't know how to act. And I think that is kind of a thing that we get knocked on quite a bit because we're kind of trying to do such a balancing act between the music and the movement and the acting. And I think kind of tied into this is movement. Yes. I think we spend a lot of time, obviously, as classical singers learning how to stand a certain way, how to hold ourselves a certain way to make us uh, better singers. And so when we finally get told to move across the stage, we get very nervous about how to do it. And I think like the I think the stronghold underneath all of this is Alexander Technique. I think Alexander Technique should come in a lot earlier than it does for training. I understand that not everyone can do a full Alexander course, but I think this is once again one of those things that could just be a workshop once a year with all of the singers to just teach them the basics of Alexander because it helps you make smart choices with your movement that aren't going to interrupt your ability to produce sound. And it's such a nice basis for all of that. Yeah, I really appreciate Alexander technique. And I honestly have never been humbled so much in my life when I realized I did not know how to properly sit down in a chair. (laughs) (laughs) Or like how to get up if I'm like on the floor, you know? Actually, one of the things that I I still actively use today from Alexander Technique is that kind of exercise that they have you do when you become very body conscious and you say, am I fully relaxed in my wrists? Is my neck fully relaxed? Is my spine elongated? Because it's not really something you think about, but taking an Alexander course gives you so many little tools to think about and check in with your body that, like you said, if it was a, a yearly workshop, that would be so wonderful. Absolutely. And You know, the other thing I was going to bring up into this was there's also just the (laughs) kind of a lack of body awareness. And we see it all the time with singers. Everyone remembers what their nervous tick was when they first started singing. Sometimes it's like the claw hands. Your arms are kind of bowed out weird or something. Everyone has a twitch. But even that happens in movement, too. I'm hyper flexible in a lot of joints. And I was talking to Michelle about this earlier, but my arms kind of sway in a really bizarre way when I walk. I didn't know that until I started taking acting and somebody pointed out that I walk like a weirdo. Um, And having that body awareness and having somebody to point out the things about you that don't look right. I mean, this is also, this, this is something that movie actors go through. You wouldn't believe the number of movie actors who talk about the first time they saw themselves run on screen and realize that like they don't look like an action hero running. They look like a weirdo. Because it's true. We don't move in a way that necessarily is theatrical. And so... It's important to have somebody to give you that feedback. 
Yeah, definitely. And included in movement is uh, dance, right? How many times have yep. you been in an opera where you need to do these like elaborate waltz numbers or you have like a polka number or who knows what, right? Some peasant dancing, if you will. Um, Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, we've all done the peasant uh, dance. I guess it's a rite of passage as an opera singer, but movement is so important and it would be really nice to have classes that were a little bit more available. I know that, you know, lots of schools do have movement classes and dancing for singers, but there are certain dances in opera that you just kind of need to know. And, you know, within that is even Baroque styles of movement, such as bowing and stuff. So it would be nice to to know that <laughs> ahead of time since we're called on to waltz all the time. Yeah, and the nice thing about those is once you have those kind of basic steps down, it's not too hard to move from one to the other. Well, yeah, I mean, nothing's more awkward than when you bring in like an actual dance choreographer to your opera rehearsals and then they do like a dance call or they do some like early choreography and you could just see on the dance teacher's face like, oh, uh, no. Very, <laughs> very true. <laughs> Which basically happens in about every production I've ever been in. <laughs> yeah, on the choreographer's face of like, wow, I have to teach these singers yeah. how to dance. <laughs> and I, I guess going, <laughs> gosh. Kind of moving backwards on this, the other big thing that happens a lot in schools when you're auditioning for these productions is that you don't get direct feedback from the auditions. And I don't know if that's true across schools, but it, it, it was true for me. And I always find that kind of funny because one of the most helpful things in the world is to get feedback on how your audition went. Because sometimes your adrenaline is so high that you don't necessarily have the clearest vision of what happened. And unless your teacher was sitting in on auditions or is the director, you have to kind of go and ask for that feedback. And depending on what kind of, you know, who was sitting in on the room, you may or may not get it. Yeah, I feel like there are courses that are audition practice courses. I had to take one in grad school and that taught me so much about how to slate your name, the energy that you immediately bring what your materials look like, but that's not available at a lot of schools. And even if that is made available to you, I feel like usually the only opportunity for written feedback for singers is juries. I wish that there were more opportunities to get feedback aside from, you know, master classes and, and juries, because it is really nice to kind of have a more outside opinion yeah. of your performance practices than just your teacher. I think my thing about it, too, is that those auditions for the auditions for programs in school are just the most true to life moment. You know, you walk out on a stage, you have this list of things they can choose from. You choose one, they choose one. And the energy is really there because you are actually auditioning for something you want, which is not to say that audition classes are not important because I think audition classes are invaluable. I just think that's the most true to life feeling like that's the one that mimics cl most closely like the stakes that you feel when you get up to audition yeah honestly I think that schools don't do that because a lot of singers are babies and would complain you know because everybody not everybody but there are many singers who are very self-righteous and believe that they should always get the opportunity just because they auditioned for it which once again linking us all back to episode one in creating your own opportunities we know that there are many more opportunities for you than just the ones you audition for well i think also so. that auditioners get <laughs> tired you know obviously they take notes but they're not necessarily yeah. detailed notes it may just be like a yes no yeah but but something maybe more opportunities where we are kind of getting that audition feedback would be would be nice yeah it definitely doesn't hurt and that being said 
go and ask people who were sitting in on the audition for their feedback. I've I've done that many a time. I've gotten very harsh feedback from some of those, but it's really good to have someone tell you like what you were doing. I once did a whole audition, thought it went pretty well, didn't get it, wasn't surprised by that. But I went out and I asked her, I asked one of the teachers who was sitting in, what could I have done better? And apparently I wasn't wearing my glasses or my contacts at the time because it was something new I was trying to see if like, if not being able to see them would help me because we were auditioning in a, a kind of weird room. And she was like, oh, you had a full on deer in headlights look on your face the whole time, which I think might've been because I was blind. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> you know you live and learn you try things and you find out you were wrong <laughs> but that's why asking for feedback's important that's the funniest thing i've ever heard in my life <laughs> oh. i really love the idea of you singing your little heart out just like completely blind and the audition panel is like where is she looking oh my gosh well yeah that was the problem i couldn't like i couldn't do the thing where you focus on anything because i am very blind oh my gosh that's <laughs> that was the best thing i've ever heard oh, oh and that- that's so good <laughs> the next little thing that i'm talk- gonna talk about is kind of implied in some of the other stuff we've talked about a little bit in acting classes and in movement and all of that. But one of the things that I regret the most in my schooling was not having more time and space to experiment. In music programs, we often end up with these very, very full schedules, which means that oftentimes we are really pressed to learn the music, learn the dialogue, learn everything as quickly as possible, which is a shame because I think one of the most important things a school can be is a safe place to experiment and fail. And I I do mean fail. I mean to make wild decisions you know, and I think that's how you how you learn the most is just by failing and, and making weird choices. Because the worst thing I think a lot of performers do is they play things very safe. And I am 100% a part of that group. I play, I've played many things way too safely. One of the things I did in undergrad that really, really helped me out was improv. I did, I was part of an improv troupe and... I learned how to make wild decisions on stage and jokes that did not land and I learned how to move on from them and I learned how to play off of them and and that made me a much better performer in every single way and every time I came out of one of those sessions working with those other students I remember feeling like I wish I could do this with my my music students with my other music colleagues it creates such a wonderful safe space to try new things and not feel bad it feels so safe and so wonderful because we're all putting ourselves out there with the chance of failure, which I was lucky enough. I usually I had a little bit of that with my music colleagues, but I know a lot of people are, are were in more competitive departments than I was. Absolutely. On improvisation, both acting wise and improvisation musically, it's very interesting that there's obviously jazz singers and jazz players trained so heavily in improvisation and it's just not something that a lot of other musicians are taught. Um, you know, many of us cross over into other genres besides classical music. So improvisation, while perhaps not so prevalent in classical music, is very prevalent in other styles. And having that knowledge, which all kind of comes down to your oral skills, your theory skills, sometimes your piano skills, it's a, a very important and helpful tool because it really kind of shows your musical knowledge 
you know, your your understanding of styles and context. And even within classical music, you know, sometimes we have to improvise when we're learning cadenzas or writing in our own cadenzas or trying out different ornaments, you know. So I wish that improvisation was stressed more. I think what really good improv is, regardless of whether it's musical or otherwise, is kind of this overlap of knowledge, confidence, and just a little bit of trust in everything around you, both yourself and whoever else you're working with. I think the beautiful thing about improv is it teaches you how to make your own choices, which when you work in a field that you spend so much time learning the right way to do things, I think it's really important to teach students to have agency and choice. And I think sometimes we put it off for so long and then we are surprised when singers do not know how to make their own choices. Yeah. Yeah. That's the beauty of improv is it turn- it teaches you to have agency. It is part of that self-advocacy thing, which is just having a trust and a confidence in yourself and your knowledge that you are allowed to and should be making your own choices when you make music. Part of gaining the knowledge to do stuff like that, I think, comes down to how we teach things like theory and oral skills. I think my biggest issue with theory classes is that they are often taught in a vacuum and theory without application is pretty pointless. I just think that so often we were doing music theory with these, you know, just out of context lines of harmonies and melodies when we could have been bringing in our own music and talking about how do I take my theory and use it to prepare this piece. And I don't even necessarily mean that the teacher has to do it for us. What I'm saying is like even just have singers and uh, orchestral musicians have them bring in their personal pieces and talk about like how does theory help me with this because even if they're wrong (laughs) even if they're not quite there yet they're going to learn how to use it and present it to others in that applicable way and that that ability to critically think is so important because it's not just about knowing a chord progression it's knowing why that chord progression can help you (laughs) absolutely and we see this as as singers when we're learning our recits right? We touched a little bit on this in our previous episode with Ryan Johnson um, in our practice routines episode, but you can learn so much about where your music is going when you actually like really think about the theory and the chord progressions, especially in things like recit, because that's all it is. It's just a bunch of chord progressions, which I suppose that's what all of music is. But, (laughs) you know, it's it is really helpful for us singers, especially to think about theory being applied to the music that we're learning rather than just sight reading or analyzing these things that perhaps are good exercises but not as practically useful. You know I think that's largely why we see people I think that's largely why you see people necessarily doing they are called remedial courses but doing those courses again in grad school. I think it's partially because If you're not using it, you will lose that knowledge because it's just not coming into your day-to-day life. And I think that's why we still see people having to do that is because they're not taught it in application. So they're spending time prepping music. Most people finish their theory courses sophomore, junior year, and suddenly you have a whole year in between finishing undergrad and grad school where you're not necessarily using theory every day unless you were taught it in application. Yeah, I think a lot of theory courses are generally geared towards the composers, which is great. That's true. You know what I mean? Like, I think that for for in many insta- instances, we should be able to kind of put on that different thinking cap and be able to think about our music the way that it was composed and everything that comes with that. But at the same time, a lot of these instrumental players and singers have no interest in being composers and really need to kind of learn theory a different way in a way that's a little bit more personalized and suited for them. 
I'm actually going to counteract you on this just a little bit uh, and disagree because I, to my senior year of undergrad, I took composition courses to help me retain my theory. And one of the first things I was told was stop using theory to write your music in the sense that I was using it to predict what I would do next. And I kept getting told that I was being too boring. So the other thing about it is even for composers, theory is more a method of understanding what you're hearing than a method of composing. That's fair. It's more of a way to analyze what you want to do as opposed to a way to choose what you're going to do next. (laughs) Oh, what I'm saying is I think we get taught theory in such an odd way (laughs) for how any of us use it. It is. Honestly, I think the the bane of my existence in my theory classes, which I completely understand why these are a good exercise, but I hated writing pieces. (laughs) I do not have a composition bone in my body. I leave that to people who love it and are far more talented. But that was just like, I was like, I have no intent of ever writing my own music. Please don't make me do this. But I think that's the weird thing about theory. Theory is meant to be a framework for understanding what you're hearing. It's not necessarily meant to be like this cold, hard law. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like I said, what I wanted to see more of and looking back, what I wish I had had more of in theory was more chances to use it critically as opposed to, like I said, what felt almost like busy work. Um, And then on the oral skills side of this, Michelle and I have talked about this a little bit. Yeah, I think oral skills is just, once again, another thing that can either be really well taught or just kind of disastrous. Uh, And what I mean by this is, I feel like whenever you're really drilling these just random excerpts of all these different types of of music or these random lines um, and not looking at real pieces, I feel like there's a lot lost there. Because in my graduate program, when I was doing some of the oral skills classes, the bulk of what we were sight reading were these Bach chorales, which is not something that I had really spent much time doing before, but it really just locked everything in. I feel like the stars aligned for me and I finally understood what I was supposed to be looking at at the bitter, bigger context than just my note to note. And, you know, we would switch. Sometimes I'd be singing soprano, tenor, bass, and it just you know, one on a part, and it made so much more sense. And I was able to hear everything so much better. I was able to sight read better because I knew what my part sounded like in context. If I had dissonance against the alto line or something, singing pieces made so much more sense to me than just all of these abstract exercises that I had practiced before. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, and I think, you know, moving on from oral skills, a huge skill that we should have leaving undergrad and grad school is having decent piano skills. And it's kind of interesting because obviously as a singer, playing piano is incredibly important whether you decide to become a teacher or, you know, just continue the path of the performer because so many times we're needing to accompany ourselves or really break down a complicated passage and we need to have piano confidence. And while this is always expected of us, especially in undergrad and definitely in graduate programs, I feel like the way that we are taught and tested is not always efficient in that sometimes piano is tagged onto our theory classes or our oral skills classes, but not really given enough time or enough assignments to really make sure that the learning is happening. And taking lessons with professors 
isn't always available to us. Sometimes it's at an additional cost. Sometimes 30-minute lessons aren't made available to singers, which obviously has a lot of influence on how much we have to pay and how much extra time we're spending learning piano. And it would just be really nice if we had even like TA positions or private tutor positions, whether that's head up by our piano performance majors or music education majors. I just wish that there were more opportunities to really put our piano skills into practice. You know, I think that was kind of the funny thing is everywhere I've ever been, there have always been tutors for oral skills and for theory, but not necessarily for piano, which was probably what I kind of most needed at that time. And I actually was, I benefited from the fact that I did have piano lessons as a little kid. The bad thing is my piano lessons as a kid left me with crippling anxiety around playing piano in front of people. Yeah. Which uh, made it very difficult in undergrad to do what I needed to do. So I really would have benefited from having the availability of a tutor. And I did have a private teacher. And then I ran into the problem that you mentioned, which was like they stopped doing short lessons, which meant that it was do an hour of twinkle, twinkle, little star or nothing. But my, my biggest issue, I guess, was because I agree with you. Piano proficiency is incredibly important. And I, I, I understand that. And I don't want to get rid of it by any means. What I just want is a better format for teaching it and enough space and time because there are just certain skills like transposition and harmonization you know if you're just given a melody those are skills that take time to learn and sometimes stuff like that gets a little rushed and if you're also doing like I said earlier you know six shows in a semester or something like that it's gonna be hard to fit in the appropriate amount of piano time unless it's kind of incorporated. Well, yeah, and I think that's kind of the problem, you know, when we have these situations where piano is tied into a theory course is, you know, sometimes we have a little bit more busy work than we would like to admit in our theory classes with these like worksheets and these analyzations, and we really don't have time for piano. Yeah, things like improvisation, harmonization, transposition, I really don't feel like that's something that you can easily just teach yourself. Like, unless you have piano knowledge already, but for someone like me who really didn't play the piano at all, going into undergrad, having to, like, spend time on those things without a private teacher or in class, like, seeing how it worked to the extent that I probably needed to practice it, by the time we had piano proficiency exams, I was so stressed because I was like, how do I learn this? I don't even know how to learn this skill. Yeah, and that's the thing. If you don't teach a skill properly, if you don't give that time and space and honestly even incentive to do so, you really can't make it a graduation requirement. Everybody is so different in their level of experience going into something like an undergrad degree, you know, that it's like, yes, it really needs to be something that's worked on because, yes, of course, you're going to have your instrumentalists who started with the piano and then switched over to their to their instrument or these singers who played piano since they were three and they're fine but there are many of us who didn't have that experience and then are struggling to teach ourselves which you really do need a teacher to show you proper hand placement and technique and fingering and it's just like it's there's just too much variance for it to not have more importance because like you said it's really hard to be tested on something if you're not given the, the time to really learn it. But it is an absolutely essential skill. So it's kind of this tricky situation, you know? Yeah, well, I think you bring up the, the really difficult point is it's easy to look at the people in the class who did have piano for years and years and years and be like, oh, we're all doing fine. And then there's the people in the corner who are like, please don't ever call on me to play anything because I cannot. Exactly. 
our next big thing is uh, something that's particularly important to me, which is pedagogy. And I say that because I managed to get both of my degrees without being required to take a singular pedagogy class, which is kind of wild if you think about it. Luckily, I had teachers who were very pedagogy involved, so I got a lot of it in my personal lessons. But still, I think it's kind of crazy. Yeah, pretty much all of my like ped knowledge is because I've sought after it myself through either like taking workshops or reading textbooks even though I wasn't in an actual class because a lot of the times these courses are saved for our music education majors, our ped majors, and they're not really always made available um, or scheduled in a way that fits into the the curriculum of just a performance major, which is shocking to me because it's like, if anything, even if you don't take, take the teacher route as so many of us do you gotta know what's happening inside your body when you're making sound you know yeah no it's kind of wild that you could just not have to take those courses and you know we were talking about this you spend probably anywhere from one to two years taking theory courses depending on who you are but you can spend literally no time as a singer studying the theory of what that mouth do (laughs) No, but it's so true. And this could easily be fixed if we had, if ped courses were scheduled in a different way. That was just kind of my experience in grad school is I always had the option to take ped classes, but they were usually either already taken by the ped majors or they were almost always scheduled at a point where I had another class that I probably needed to, to take over that one, you know, and this could easily be changed by having once again some sort of like workshop spend a weekend get a packet you know this is something that you and I discussed having a packet to to take home that or even just like being given materials or a textbook that you should be looking at and ordering if you're interested in learning more would be so helpful yeah I think as a workshop it's pretty effective because you introduce the material and this packet gives them the language and vocabulary to create a dialogue in other courses. Something like pedagogy, where it really can be incorporated across a curriculum. I think the biggest issue is, like I said, as a student, you may not know how to voice that. So giving people, you know, just a basic rundown and having everybody together in a workshop, that is actually a pretty effective way to go about it. Yeah, and I think something that I really liked about the Boston Conservatory is the the ped majors had to give lessons to non-majors which I think is great. It was something that required of them to get that in-person experience. But honestly, it would probably be pretty cool if, if they also had to give lessons to to vocal performance majors and kind of have that relationship of this is what I'm teaching you and I'm also getting that practical use out of it as well of you know both students kind of being able to learn from one another. Absolutely. But yeah, PET is important and I wish that we had more time to all focus on it. Yeah. And I think that gets down to the heart of the issue when we talk about all these things we wish were incorporated is time. Like, how do you balance these into what is already a very, very full schedule for a lot of music students? And I say that in recognition, like if you are a teacher listening to this episode, we understand that you do not have the ability to do all these things to incorporate them. I have watched teachers fight with administration for resources and time and classrooms and appropriate supplies. So this is not an episode that is meant to blame anybody or say anything. This is just to introduce some of the things that looking back on, we were like, wow, I wish things had been a little bit different. By and large, I am grateful for the education that I got in so many different ways. But yet there's always things that can be improved. And 
I think the trickiest thing about talking about all of this is the fact that if you incorporated everything we said, you'd end up with like a six-year degree, um, which is kind of cool because that's about how long it took to get both of them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) True. But I think that's why we mentioned, you know, with stuff like pedagogy and with Alexander Technique, there is the opportunity to do stuff as workshops and required workshops. I think that's the key point there. You're going to have to require it because some people just do not show up to things otherwise. But having those once a year can really create kind of a basis and a lifestyle around how that department works. Not only that you seek out knowledge in these areas on your own time, but also that like we are a department that cares about these things. In an ideal world, this would all be things that are included in our music education within the university or the conservatory structure. But at the same time, as musicians, you have to be in charge of your own education. And if you're not getting these skills somewhere, you really do need to look at the time that you have, uh, you know, maybe during summer when there's a little bit less going on to really hone in on these skills. Because the reality is, like you said, music schools aren't always able to implement things fast enough while you're still at that school, um, or maybe just don't have the resources to have some of these things included in their curriculum so it really the responsibility also falls on the music student to be creating their own education as well absolutely it all comes back to like i said our first episode and what is largely an overarching theme of this podcast which is self-advocacy you will have to get up and advocate for yourself and for your education if you want it to be as good as it can be and it's tricky and it's difficult and it takes time and money and all of these other things but it makes things better and it is worth doing and it is worth standing up for. So, you know, especially the things we've mentioned that could be workshops, Alexander Technique, movement, all of that. Seek out those things. There are pe- summer pedagogy courses. There are these summer things that are not necessarily performance programs, but if you take the time to do them, will massively improve you as a singer and as a musician. So make sure you're on the lookout for those and don't let school be the only thing guiding your education. Make educated jo- choices about where you want to improve yourself. Absolutely. And I think, you know, going off of self-advocacy, you know, if you're wanting to learn Alexander Technique and you have a teacher at your school who's certified, you know, a group of you and your friends might want to approach them and just have a dialogue about, would you be interested in doing bi-weekly Alexander Technique sessions and just communicate with your professors and see if There are little one-on-one or like small group coachings that you can do because you'll see that a lot of the people who are, you know, PED certified, Alexander Technique certified, acting teachers do want you to be getting this education, even if they don't necessarily have the means to make it a full course. So take it into your own hands to communicate with them and see if you can work something out. So don't be afraid to ask too to be asking for those things or to go and ask an acting teacher if you can sit in on their class every once in a while or to ask if you can, you know, audit some of these classes that aren't in your major if they don't allow students to um, take them or if you don't necessarily have the time in your schedule. So look for opportunities like that because the reality is is that schools will try and take the advice and incorporate it, but it also takes time. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much for joining us. 
please go onto our Facebook and our Instagram and let us know what you wish had been involved in your music education. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow us at Opera Offstage on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or you can go onto our website, opera-offstage.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. We'd love to know what you think. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. Bye.